0: Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm speaking with ACA's Executive Director, Mary Louise Serrato. Welcome, Mary Louise. Thanks for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thanks, Michelle. It's great to be able to update everyone today on ACA's efforts. Let's get into it by asking about COVID,
0: the CARES Act, and the Recovery Rebates, or Economic Impact Payments, aka EIPs.
1: Well, definitely, COVID is the subject of the day, the lockdown in the United States and worldwide. What's going on with the pandemic? Who's getting sick? Who's getting better? Where can people travel? That's definitely on everyone's minds these days. In terms of COVID itself and the legislation that the US Congress passed, the CARES Act, as most of the audience already knows, ACA has been working to ensure that Americans overseas can access the recovery and stimulus provisions of the CARES Act. Once ACA heard that the Congress was working on legislation, we wrote to congressmen and the committees stressing that Americans overseas needed to be included in that legislation. Some people thought this was counterintuitive and would really work against efforts for us to ask for tax reform, but if you're going to have a system in place that taxes individuals based on their citizenship part of our duty as well is to ensure that if there are tax relief programs Americans overseas need to have access to these it's only fair for as long as the legislation is in place as we know it today it's only fair that Americans overseas are treated fairly so the committees they did listen and as a result. Americans overseas were qualified for the economic impact payments, the EIP, which early on and and still today are sometimes referred to as recovery rebates. I won't go into great detail about ACA's advocacy work with the IRS and the congressional offices, In the last ACA tax cast that you and I did, Michelle, I covered a lot of this and did a a deep dive. So perhaps in your show notes, you can include a reference to that podcast for people who really wanna get into the subject of things. Today, I'll just try to give you the Cliff Notes summary version. Essentially, once the legislation, the CARES Act legislation was passed and Americans overseas were included, We went out and contacted the IRS, the Treasury, and congressional offices, and we educated them on the fact that there was going to have to be special consideration for Americans overseas in how the CARES Act would be administered. Our big ask for the EIPs or the recovery rebates was to have them distributed by direct bank deposit and we offered a few ideas on how the IRS would manage this. One of them was the idea of an all zero return. And this was something that early on in the CARES Act, I think committees were considering. It was something that was used in 2008 when that stimulus program was put into place. And essentially, it would have been a filing where an individual doesn't include any tax information. So The all zero, but simply is able to provide physical address information if they want the check mailed or bank direct deposit information. Unfortunately, the IRS and Treasury decided not to pick up on the all zero return. And as many people know, they implemented the get my payment tool. And this was the online tool that had a pretty bumpy uh, takeoff for everyone, not just for Americans overseas. For us, our big issue for over three weeks was the foreign address problem. Individuals could not input their foreign addresses. The tool, however it was formatted, wasn't accepting them and was essentially kicking those people out or sending them an error message. We worked very closely with the IRS to let them know about the problem. And they did fix the problem, but unfortunately, like I said, it took them about three weeks. And at that point, they had put a firm deadline in for when bank deposit information could be inputted in the system. So it left Americans overseas with only three days to get that information into the Get My Payment tool. And of course, the issue of needing to have a U.S. bank account and the inability of the IRS to make deposits into a foreign bank account, unless, of course, you were receiving Social Security benefits. For those individuals, the IRS is processing the EIP payments using the information on file for their receipt of their Social Security benefits and social security can make deposits into foreign bank accounts social security recipients don't need to provide the irs with any additional information as the irs will work with what is on file with social security we have had people ask well why is it that social security benefits can be made into a foreign bank account but the irs cannot make tax refunds or these eip payments into a foreign bank account This we believe has a lot to do with the fact that when someone begins to receive their social security benefits, they set up their own social security account. And this is a password protected account with social security where they can manage all their business in one place online with social security. This type of system is not mirrored for taxpayers in the same fashion. It probably should be. There are ways for taxpayers to pay their taxes online to pay estimate taxes online, but rebates and refunds are still handled by providing the IRS with information via an individual's tax return. There is no personal account like Social Security where all the information for a taxpayer can be put in one place, including updates on addresses, banking information, these sorts of important tools that they can use to manage their tax filings and their tax payments. I'm sure what a lot of people want to know now is how do I find out where my recovery rebate or EIP payment is? I'm still using the Get My Payment tool. I'm either not identified, I'm not getting any updated information. This continues to be a problem. We have heard from the community that it is working for a lot of people. They are able to go in there, they do see that. Their payment has been processed and it gives them a date, depending on how the delivery of that rebate is coming. If it's coming by hard copy mail and that person lives overseas, obviously, it's hard to predict exactly when that's going to hit their mailbox because of the shutdown and slowdown of mail delivery. But then there are some people who just aren't even getting that minimal information because for whatever reason, the Get My Payment tool isn't working for them. For those individuals, there are two phone numbers, which you include in your show notes. One is an 800 number. The IRS has put more operators on that number. Some phone apps will allow overseas Americans to dial an 800 number. So we have heard from people who have been able to do that. They've been able to get into the IRS and they've been able to get an update on where their payment, when it was processed, how it was processed. Some people have even reported that they've been able to do an address change speaking directly to the IRS. The other number that the IRS has is not an 800 number on both of these numbers the delays are long sometimes the the waits are long but it does appear that in some cases you can get a response and you can get an update the other recommendation that has been given to us is for individuals to file a form 3911 and this is just a tracking form for your tax rebates as well you can include this in your show notes but The American Association of Retired Persons has some guidance on this on their website and tell you how to fill it out in order to ensure that the IRS knows that you're asking about your recovery rebate and where it needs to be mailed, in particular, if you're mailing it from overseas. So there are a few things that we've been able to put out there to the community to help them track their payments. It's not perfect, but it does seem to be working for some individuals.
0: But the legislation did leave some overseas Americans out in the cold.
1: Yes, there were definitely areas of the legislation that fell short. And these instances make great examples for why the United States needs to adopt residency-based taxation. One issue, a big issue for a lot of individuals, a lot of couples, is the disqualification from the EIPs based on joint tax filings where one individual is filing with a U.S. Social Security number and the other joint filer has an individual taxpayer identification number or an ITIN. So in this instance, the IRS has given joint filers a way to file jointly that's advantageous and beneficial to them so a lot of people use that for their tax filings but on the relief side they suddenly disqualify those individuals for using that very same system the second issue was relief for small u.s businesses overseas under the tax cuts and jobs act of 2017 u.s businesses overseas small or large fell under the transition tax and guilty provisions These provisions essentially brought overseas U.S. businesses into a territorial-style taxation regime. However, the provisions were really written with large multinationals in mind and did not really take into consideration small U.S. businesses that were not offshoring profits like the large multinationals. Now, these same small U.S. businesses overseas that came under the transition tax and guilty provisions have been unable to access the CARES Act relief. And that's because the CARES Act relief is only available to businesses located in the 50 US states.
0: How can these shortcomings in the legislation and the experience of the CARES Act help with ACA's advocacy
1: efforts? Great question. These experiences add to the growing list that highlights the problems and the inequities in the current citizenship-based taxation regime. As I've mentioned in the past two questions, if you're gonna have this regime and expect people to fall under it, it has to be fair in all senses. And it's not just a question of simply saying that citizenship taxation is wrong. It's not the global standard that other industrialized nations use. Those are all good arguments, but what the committees and what the Congress needs to be shown is exactly how deep these problems go with citizenship-based taxation. I like to call it the tentacles of the problem because it all comes out of citizenship-based taxation, but it moves around in a lot of different directions. So as we all know, you have things like the foreign banking lockout because of FATCA, the issues of individuals who might make a filing mistake and suddenly have a penalty application that might actually lead to revocation of of a passport because of the passport revocation provision that was passed. You have things like onerous tax rates on passive foreign investment corporations, PFIX. A lot of foreign investments, a lot of investments that Americans overseas might do in in other quote unquote foreign investments are viewed as PFIX by the IRS. And therefore the tax rate on those, because it's an American who holds them, is very onerous. And on the foreign side, it might be a great local investment and might be something someone, you know, really needs to do in their local jurisdiction. But then on the U.S. side, it has a real negative implication. Also, the assessment, the 3.8% capital gains tax that funds the Affordable Care Act when individuals overseas can't access the Affordable Care Act. So the CARES experience adds to this list and it's getting longer and longer. Highlighting the problem in this way to Congress is much more effective than simply advocating for tax reform because it's the right thing to do, because this really puts it out there in in black and white what the problems are and what people are dealing with.
0: And what will ACA do in a practical
1: way with all this knowledge? First of all, we are making the offices in Congress aware of the CARES Act experiences and the problems in writing and by direct contact. As you know, since launching ACA's Tax Fairness for Americans Abroad, an idea worth fighting for writing campaign last year, we have been building up ever greater support in offices for RBT. Even before the writing campaign, ACA had cultivated supporters in Congress and on the tax writing committees on both sides of the aisle for residence-based taxation. ACA was also the first organization to put pen to paper and outline using our side-by-side comparative showing where changes in the current citizenship-based taxation, or CBT, needed to be made to move to a residence-based or RBT-style legislation. ACA also funded research through our sister organization, ACA Global Foundation, which is the educational and fundraising organization of ACA. And that research provided offices with data on the income and investment makeup of the overseas community. This data was beneficial to Congressman Holdings' office in the development of his legislation, the Tax Fairness for Americans Abroad Act. And as a matter of fact, last week, ACA issued two communications, one to the National Taxpayer Advocate and another to the IRS and Treasury. The National Taxpayer Advocate is the watchdog of the IRS and works on behalf of taxpayers. Under the previous National Taxpayer Advocate, Nina Olson, who retired last year, the National Taxpayer Advocate was very supportive of the issues and problems of U.S. taxpayers overseas. ACA has been in contact with the new National Taxpayer Advocate, Erin Collins, and her staff these last few months advocating for tax reform for Americans overseas and in our recent letter we highlighted the problems in administering the CARES Act as another reason RBT is needed. However, must be remembered that the National Taxpayer Advocate does not write tax legislation and can only advise the Congress and be supportive of our issues, which we believe the National Taxpayer Advocate will continue to do. We also wrote to the IRS and Treasury, reiterating the need for a de minimis ruling to take out small U.S. businesses from under the transition tax and guilty provisions. Again, stressing that residence-based taxation is the ultimate corrective treatment for these problems, but in the interim, they should just remove small U.S. businesses from those provisions.
0: And what is the status of Congressman Holdings legislation? We hear he's leaving office at the end of this year. Does that mean that his legislative work will stop?
1: That's another great question. Many people in the community that think that without Congressman Holdings support, there's really no hope for RBT. And that is just really far from the truth. Everyone at ACA is saddened to hear that Congressman Holding won't be returning to Congress next year. But the work that he undertook does not simply vanish and go away. What's important to remember is that his work, along with ACA's, is in the hands of many important committee members, the Joint Committee on Taxation, the Senate Finance Committee, House Ways and Means. And for the last two committees, it isn't just sitting in the hands of one party. Both Democratic and Republican staffs have been looking at the complete body of work, including Congressman Holdings' work. Remember as well that the House Ways and Means Committee and Senate Finance Committee, those are the tax writing committees. Congress can propose legislation, but when it gets down to the nitty-gritty of writing how the legislation will be implemented, it's those committees that are really going to do the deep dive along with the input from the Joint Committee of Taxation. So all that work is still there. All that work is still being referenced. There are a lot of other Congressional offices that continue to be interested in the issue, so the knowledge is there and it's still very much alive and going to be referenced and used. ACA's big push, and this is where the community can continue to help us, is really in calling for hearings. As I mentioned, the important committees have all of Congressman Holdings' work, they have our work, they have work from other organizations, and that now all has to be put on record. It's only by having this subject matter really aired in front of the committees, having them understand how deep the problems of CBT go and having organizations such as ACA testify, as well as having individuals, people who are living this day to day, can refinements to Congressman Holdings legislation or new legislation be drafted. It is essential that the tax writing committees understand that the problem isn't about Americans quote-unquote not wanting to pay taxes. Oftentimes we see that in the media, even when there are articles that speak to U.S. renunciations, it's often couched in the terms of individuals who don't want to pay taxes. But we all know that that is not the truth of the matter. Americans overseas simply don't want to have an unfair tax system that exposes them to double taxation, to reducing their ability to legitimately invest overseas, that blocks them from having basic banking and investment tools to manage their lives, that blocks them from creating business opportunities, and that costs them thousands and thousands of dollars and hours to just simply file. It's in everyone's interest to get this message on record with the committees and out in the general public.
0: How can ACA push these committees to hold hearings?
1: Well, we are starting with the House Ways and Means Committee and the Select Revenue Committee, because that is where tax legislation really begins, so to speak. The write-in campaign I mentioned before is essential. The community and everyone listening to this podcast, I just can't say it often enough, should immediately go to the ACA website and join the write-in campaign asking for hearings. You'll put it in your show notes, the Tax Fairness for Americans Abroad, an idea worth fighting for campaign. It's easy and simple to use. All you need is your U.S. voting address. The ACA platform does the rest. We get the message to your representatives in Congress and to the members of the tax writing committees responsible for calling for hearings. Nearly 15,000 messages have already gone into offices, and ACA is following up with many of those. It's amazing. When I walk through the doors of these offices, they are already aware of the problem and willing to talk because they've received the communication from a constituent through the writing campaign. This is where community support is key. ACA can always open the door in Congress because we're here working 24-7 on site. Well, right now that's happening a little more via distance, but you know what I mean. However, when there is community support behind us it makes the task all that much easier
0: so the tax writing committees can make refinements to the tax fairness for americans abroad act or write new legislation how can aca's work help with this
1: fantastic question we all know that the irs the treasury and the congress have limited information on the community of americans overseas There really is no requirement for Americans to register with the U.S. or the U.S. Embassy when they move overseas. When filing taxes from overseas, some will file using perhaps the U.S. address they have. Some may use their tax preparer's address. Some may use a foreign address. So tracking tax returns by addresses doesn't give the IRS the full picture. Even the use of foreign tax credits on a return doesn't get the information as to how many Americans are living overseas because there's many Americans who are living in the US who may be using foreign tax credits because of investments that they hold overseas. Tax returns that use the Foreign Earned Income Exclusion, the FEIE, is probably the one tool that the IRS and Treasury have for a clear line of sight into an overseas tax filer, as you really can only use the FEIE when you are a bona fide resident of a foreign country. Like I mentioned before, ACA's body of work on residence-based taxation, particularly our data and our research work that we did on the income and investment makeup of Americans overseas, and this was the research project that was funded by our educational and fundraising organization, ACA Global Foundation, is probably, I don't want to say the only data on the subject, matter outside of what the IRS and Treasury have for reporting purposes, but there's not much out there, and this is a key piece. This is a great complement to the information that the government has, and it helps to fill in the picture. Another important thing is to be remembered about the ACA research. It was done by an independent revenue estimator here in Washington, D.C., District Economics Group, DEG, DEG's business is specialized in economic analysis and insights into federal and state budget legislative and regulatory policy making processes. They're the experts in this. They know how to dive into these numbers. So we know our data is well-respected by the offices where we have presented it and who are referencing it because it comes from a trusted and qualified source. It's great that individuals and others are developing back of the envelope estimates, but when you're dealing with the tax writing committees and the congressional offices that are seriously looking into the problem, they want professional data, data like what was provided by DEG through our research work. Now this research and data needs to make it in front of the committees at hearings. They all have it at committee level and at staff level, but it needs to be put on record at hearings.
0: I imagine that there are challenges working in Washington, D.C. with the COVID lockdown. How is ACA staying focused and continuing to pressure offices for RBT?
1: Certainly it is more challenging time than usual, and congressional focus is definitely on the COVID crisis and the stimulus and recovery efforts for individuals in the U.S. economy and tracking where the pandemic is and what's going on, as I mentioned earlier. ACA is really lucky because over the years, we have built great direct lines of communication into many of the offices that we've been meeting with. So we are still pushing our efforts and the RBT agenda. We are also keeping in contact with the IRS and the Treasury. Over the past months with COVID, we have actually been dialoguing fairly directly with the IRS. As the government offices slowly begin to open up, ACA will be back walking the halls and making meetings. I can't really stress enough how important it is to have a presence here in DC and to have these offices know that we're here and and available to them, even during this time of lockdown. ACACs every day how proximity to offices, the ability for legislators to reach us directly in real time, and the outreach from offices like the GAO, that's the Government Accountability Office, the IRS, and others, has been critical to our work.
0: Switching gears now, with this year being an election year, what is ACA doing on the subject of voting?
1: As the ACA is a nonpartisan organization, our advocacy on voting involves getting overseas Americans all the information they need to register to vote and cast their ballot. Many Americans overseas are unaware that they can actually vote. So during an election year, we get lots of requests about how to register, what address do I use, how can I get my ballot, questions like that. ACA provides some general information on the process via our website and we refer individuals to the Overseas Vote Foundation where they can find all the information they need to register and request their overseas ballot. As a complement to our efforts in providing general information, ACA this year launched the Voice Your Vote writing campaign Like our Campaign for Hearings, ACA has given you a really easy-to-use platform where you can go and you can ask the incumbents and candidates and the presidential candidates their opinions on your issues. So it's very simple to use. You use your U.S. voting address. You go in. You have an open platform to ask candidates their opinions and... Just send it in. It's really easy to use.
0: You mentioned that to participate in the Voice Your Vote and the Tax Fairness for Americans Abroad, an idea worth fighting for campaigns, you need your U.S. voting address. This would normally be the last address you lived at in the U.S., even if you have no official ties to that address anymore. What about Americans born overseas who have never lived in the U.S.? Can they register to vote? Are they able
1: to use these platforms? This is another great question. and We often get this question coming into ACA. In order to register to vote when you live overseas, you must use your last residential address in the United States or the last address where you lived. This could be the home that you, that you lived in, which you may still own or you may no longer own. It could be the apartment or house you were renting that you have no current ties to. It could be the dorm room you lived in. And believe it or not, I think it can be the hospital you were born in. Some people interpret a last US residential address to mean that you have had to live some substantial extended time in the United States. We often hear from individuals who were born in the US but left when they were like six weeks old. Well, they still qualify because they did live in the United States for those six weeks. So whatever address they can link to those six weeks as a residential address, that would be their U.S. voting address. It becomes more complicated for the individuals who were born overseas and never resided or never came back to the U.S. even to reside for some extended period, the individuals you mentioned in your question. There are 37 states that have passed legislation that allows citizens born overseas who never resided in the U.S. to claim a parent's voting residence. I won't list them here, but you can provide them in your show notes. It's unfortunate that not all 50 states allow this, but this is policy that is regulated at a state level. ACA recommends that individuals check out the Overseas Vote Foundation website as they have a wealth of knowledge.
0: Can you tell us about any other initiatives ACA is working on and any other final thoughts?
1: As I mentioned before, ACA is keeping our focus on RBT and continuing to support efforts that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. We are also looking to partner with organizations and individuals that are also advocating and lobbying for tax reform. These are organizations that are specifically interested in tax reform and advocate, but also conduct research. There are the American Chambers of Commerce that are interested in this subject matter because of the Americans they employ overseas, for example. We are going to be doing more outreach to these groups and build support. ACA is also doing more to get our name out into the community of Americans overseas and into the community of potential Americans overseas, individuals who are considering relocating overseas. ACA can be a great resource for those considering a move, Because we can educate them on some of the issues they should be aware of and how to prepare themselves and make themselves aware of some of our resources, like the ACA member SDFCU account and the ACA tax directory. Something to keep in mind about the tax directory is that for many Americans overseas, they still need tax investment and legal professionals because they are still managing investments in the U.S., A move to RBT does not change how US-based investments are taxed. Those will still be taxed by the US. Many of our members have come to us asking for these professional resources because they have things they still want to keep in the United States, investments that they are still managing in the United States and they need help for those. We are also participating in webinars to get ACA's advocacy work out to the public. We participated in two webinars in May and June for the European market, and we will be participating in one on July 22nd for the London UK market. The webinar is hosted by Dunhill Financial, and they have asked ACA to join the webinar to speak about our advocacy work for residence-based taxation. Believe it or not, many in the tax and investment community support the adoption of residence-based taxation. Check our website to sign up for that webinar. We will also be participating in another European webinar later this year in September, we think. So check our website for updates on that. Lastly, we are looking forward to post-COVID when we can start traveling internationally again so that ACA can host our traditional on-site town hall evenings in London and in Switzerland and in some other new markets. For right now, unfortunately, these are all TBD until we know more about international travel. So check back on our website for updates on all of this. Finally, we're seeing really good engagement with our current writing campaigns, as I mentioned before, the campaigns on the call for hearings for tax reform and on voting. So we're looking into expanding those and adding more campaign platforms. So we're really busy, we're doing a lot, but the important thing for this audience is Don't forget to support our efforts. Join ACA, support our efforts, donate to our efforts, check out our website to see all the work that we're doing and become part of the change.
0: Thank you, Mary Louise, for taking the time to chat today. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad Podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us.